0: In this interview, I'm joined by Andrew Holacek, author, spiritual teacher, an expert in lucid dreaming and the Tibetan yogas of dream and sleep. In this interview, Andrew reveals his childhood fascination with the occult, including seances, Ouija boards, and channelers such as Edgar Cayce and Jane Roberts. We learn how a series of powerful spiritual openings set Andrew on a quest into the world's mystical traditions, eventually to find a home in the practices of Tibetan Buddhism. Andrew discusses the limitations of scientific materialism, the similarities and differences between his training as a concert pianist and the discipline of meditation, and gives a lucid dreaming primer for those in lockdown. Andrew also shares his thinking on the role of lineage in religion, the recent scandals in the Buddhist community, and reflects on his own departure from the controversial religious group Shambhala after decades of study. So, without further ado, Andrew Holacek. Andrew Holacek, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Steve. Look forward to our time together. So, gosh, you've had quite a career and published many, many very interesting books. Uh, I think you're most known for your work in dream yoga, but also you've written about illusory body yoga and preparation for dying and so many uh, other fascinating subjects. So, I'd like to start at the beginning. Okay. From what I understand, from a very early age, you had a strong interest in spiritual and religious things. I'm curious. Can you take us back to your childhood? What sort of a boy were you, and how did this interest develop?
1: <laughs> yeah. I, okay. Uh, well, I think I was pretty much like every other kid. Uh, you know, at least through my early years. I I grew up in in Michigan in a kind of Andy of Mayberry town for people in the U.S. who might know that a very Um, safe secure environment with really loving parents I had a fantastic upbringing really I can't think of it it, um, being more kind of fortuitous and then things I suppose in this level became somewhat interesting when I started developing a a fascination with the occult this was like 10 11 years old you know oh this is kind of cool you know they're they're talking about some alternate dimension and in in the sort of thing I was just fascinated with that and then It it developed um, greater kind of traction when I started to explore the developing new age as it was. I don't think it was even coined that way back when. Um, And reading, you know, started reading whatever I could find, which wasn't a whole lot way back then. There was very actually very little out there um, on any of the topics that we are both mutually interested in. But in terms of my my own upbringing, you know. Really safe, secure, lovely background with, with a family that was completely supportive and caring and fundamentally allowed me to do almost whatever I wanted to do. Um, like like I ran off to study music, my first degree is in classical music. And, you know, there are a lot of people where I families where perhaps I might not have gotten that support. And then since then, you know, things have just evolved in in the ways that you have some intimation of based on my bio and, and the books that I write. But yeah, it started with just uh, examinations um, inarticulate as they were into alternate ways of looking at things that, um, you know, maybe this thing we call the material physical world isn't the whole story. And well, I was not able to define it as such, but I was attracted to kind of alternate sorts of things like originally the cult, the new age. And then that just developed a little bit more rigor clarity as I started to discover some of the more traditional ways, established ways of exploring these sorts of things. Um, you know, eventually Buddhism, Hinduism, non Shaiva Tantra, all these other things naturally unfolded from that kind of platform. But yeah, something like that.
0: Yeah, that's fascinating. Could you go into a little bit of, or tell us a little bit about what sort of occult material you were reading at that young age? I understand <laughs> yeah. you were interested in Edgar Cayce and yeah, exactly material and so on. That's, that's quite uh, out there stuff. So can you talk hey, about yeah. that?
1: Yeah, the very first thing I remember was was reading a book, um i think it was called voices in the dark actually i think i remember the title and it was a uh, it was a book about i think they called them indirect voice mediums or yeah some something esoteric topic i remember it had to do with basically like the whole channeling phenomena you know this whole like you mentioned eager casey um he was one of the obviously the great names in this arena but so was jane roberts i was a huge fan of her work i actually had she was so sweet. I actually had a little pen pal conversation with her for a while. She actually took the time to respond to me. But but those works really did affect me because you know the first one, Voices in the Dark, was really based more on the idea of mediumship and class of occult things and science. Um, uh, you know, just yeah, just that occult. And then then the Edgar Casey thing, Jane Roberts thing, started to ramp that up a little bit more in terms of again opening to alternate. Um, versions of reality and and so both of those those writers actually influenced me a fair amount I I found Edgar Cayce's work to be at that time really quite impactful it just made a lot of sense to me Um, and really I was just kind of massaging material that that uh, was just starting to come into life for me coming come into birth for me and then Jane Roberts really took off I read everything that she wrote um the seth material and everything i thought it i thought some of that was really really quite good uh yeah and then from there it just naturally evolved you know just like i mentioned earlier just it started to gain a little bit of formality a little bit more rigor and the whole thing really changed for me stephen when when i became introduced to meditation that was the real game changer because then it wasn't just this kind of rhetoric this new age mumbo jumbo it was like hey whoa, now I have a way where I can actually experience this first person directly for myself. So that that was, I would say, when I was age 20, that was my first kind of colossal experience where I, I was introduced to TM, Transcendental Meditation, as a stressed out undergraduate. And it was a big deal. I mean, it was the first time in my life where I was... Uh, completely able to experience a mind utterly devoid of thought, just you know, complete absorption state, samadhi. And it was, it, was, it was a monumental experience for me because I didn't, even though I had read something about it, I had no idea these kind of dimensions of mind were available. And so when you have an experience like that, it's, it's a game changer. And, and ever since then, you know, which was decades ago, it was like, hey, I'm not entirely sure what this is, but I want more of it. How can I evolve it? How can I develop it? And so that experience with TM, when I was a second year undergraduate, that was a really big deal for me because it was a a major diving board into pretty much everything I've done ever since then. Yeah, that's fascinating.
0: I'm curious if you ever attempted uh, channeling yourself, Uh, that was something that you tried in those days. And and what's your view on that uh, body (laughs) of literature now as uh, all these decades later?
1: Yeah, I guess in a certain way, uh, you know, I'm not running for political office, so I can share these things now. But uh, <laughs> uh, in a certain way, you could say, you know, I, I was into uh, um, like the whole séance thing and Ouija board thing. I mean, I, I literally, I haven't thought about this stuff in ages, right? And I, I hung out, as as fortune would have it, sometimes there, there was a, a really interesting young Frenchman that came over, who was a pretty gifted kind of psychic slash shaman and you know he just started talking to me about this sort of stuff and we started doing these kind of um seance Ouija board type things and I suppose that's the closest I've ever come to channeling um you know it's not kind of like my thing even to this day but I have tremendous enhanced respect for that phenomenology I think channeling now you know as you well know it's it's a if you put it in quotation marks, it's an integral part of most shamanic traditions and really the wisdom traditions. I mean, the Nechung oracle, right? I mean, the great oracle of his holiness, the Dalai Lama, on one level, he's he's a channeler. And um, it's really kind of part and parcel job description of of these sorts of entities. And so I haven't overtly channeled that way. I've had some serendipitous sorts of things, again, mostly through my dreams where I've had, um, what I call surrogate dreams, where I, I find myself dreaming for other people. And I suppose if you broaden the horizon of how you def- define channeling, you could say it's within that rubric. But um, yeah, generally the kind of classic, what we know is channeling hasn't really been my MO. But I, I have, you know, the, the description of mine in reality that I've come to subscribe to has room for that sort of thing. That's, you know, really exploring, trying to unpack like what's really going on with something like channeling starts to invite really deep questions. Like what is the nature of mind? You know, How is it that someone can actually do this? What phenomenologically was taking place when something is being transformed, um, communicated from so-called alternate dimensions. And so therefore it leads to me, this is I think what it did for me is it became a platform to explore mind and reality, because these are the types of things that don't fit in Western paradigms. Scientific reductionist paradigms of mind and reality. It's like, wait a second, what the heck's going on here? And so since then, I've developed a very deep appreciation for EXO studies. That's one of the latest terms for this sort of stuff, non-human intelligences. Um, I just did a fantastic program with my dear friend, Bob Thurman on Pure Land teachings and the Buddhist tradition, which talks about you know, 27 different states of ontological samsaric existence, let alone all the multitudinous states of dimension that are trans samsaric. And so I think that's fantastic stuff. So you can therefore, in fact, this actually, this will bring me back to another story. So remind me before I forget, Stephen, I wanna share a story about Kung Fu because that, that series was a big deal for me. So there's, some, there's a little teaching that I wanna get back to So it really was that I, I used the channeling thing Unbeknownst to me, as a way to channel into um, a larger view of the cosmos, you know, kind of getting out of this Western wake centric, photo centric, sight centric, egocentric, nearsighted way of looking at things, which is just so pathologically reductionist. And so I guess, yeah, I use the channeling thing almost as an archetype to channel me into these other dimensions. But the one thing I did want to say that I completely forgot about was. Um, and I mentioned this because uh, to me, it, it points out there's so many different ways to um, really authentically engage in so-called inner work cycle, you know, spiritual practice, meditative paths. And for me, one of the really big deals was, the, um, maybe in the UK, you didn't have this, but David Carradine and the whole Kung Fu series, you know, this Shaolin priest who was just so so chill and so cool and so spiritual you know, you may know, and then he goes to the West, right? And, and basically at, at the end of each uh, kind of episode, the spiritual episode, he ends up kicking some serious ass. And I, I just love that. So part of it related totally to my child, like, oh, wow, you know, you got this Kung Fu master. But there were a couple, you know, is canned and, and um, syrupy of some of these children uh, teachings were, there was, you know, grasshopper every once in a while, I would say something kind of cool. So, so I used Kung Fu also as a platform, you know, it's like, I want to be like David Carradine, you know, this guy's kind of cool. So I mentioned that, that so that when people talk about, you know, it doesn't always have to be these grand, elegant entries into this type of enterprise. It can be like, whatever puts the crowbar in and invites you into looking at mind and heart and reality in a different way. And so, um, I, I rarely talk about these deep kind of historical, uh, in my personal trajectory, strands of how I came to be, you know, what I am today, but th- those avenues were definitely part of it. And, um, yeah, I look back at, upon them with, with tremendous fondness and a, and a sense of humor, but, you know, they had an impact on me way back then.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's very interesting, and I think perhaps speaks somewhat to the way you present Dream Yoga, Uh, which often of course the uh those experiences one has in in the in dreams can be very symbolic or can be silly or can be uh uh, in that in that sense indirect or non-linear but nonetheless quite profound i'm curious of course that channeling material and also you're talking about um pure land teachings and so on there are many other teachings in buddhism and and actually uh, practically all the all the wisdom traditions have these teachings of uh, extra human life, whether it's actually aliens or transdimensional beings of some sorts. And sometimes those, I think, are reduced to simply a projection of one's, uh, an aspect of one's mind in the psychological sense, in the Jungian sense. Uh, of, Of course, that sentence could, I think, also be taken in a rather Buddhist way to mean something quite different. I'm curious what if you could comment a little on on that you know in your in your dream training and so on i'm curious if you've ever tried to contact as people do aliens or extra-dimensional beings i'm thinking of the <laughs> cat of the well i'm thinking yeah. of the castaneda work uh, for example totally. they're yeah. talking about going through different worlds and c- contacting sure. um, you know different beings and so on uh, which yeah. are not simply fa- figments of the mind in the psychological sense
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I think a couple, you know, couple interesting things to say here. I think for for one, it doesn't have to be mutually exclusive, right? It can be, it can be both. You know, you can be working with these types of phenomena as as archetypes. I think they do have that psychological um, uh, potentiality, but also I think we can work with them as literally as we work with ourselves. You know, I, I like to think of these these entities, these dimensions. Even these beings, they're just as real or unreal as we are. And, and therefore, again, why, why should we have this hubris? Why should we have this ontological supremacy that somehow, and this is the classic, you know, I mean, you go back to, to the evolution of cosmology and science, you know, from a heliocentric to a cosmocentric, you know, expansion, progressive layers of expansions of identity and um, increased levels of openness. And so, Um, Along those lines, I don't see any problem with kind of the Niels Bohr issue of complementarity. Why can't light be both a wave and a particle? Why can't these phenomena be both archetypal, psychological, and also, you know, literal? Why not? And so along those lines, a little bit more specifically, dream yoga, um, and again, for listeners, I hope they, they know what that is. Dream yoga is when you use the platform of lucid dreaming which is when you wake up to the fact that you're dreaming while you're dreaming, you're conscious in that state. Dream yoga uses that dimension of consciousness as a way to work for psycho, with psychospiritual development. And so within classic dream yoga training, then there is in fact, there are stages, one of which is called, uh, you know, the creation of a special dream body, where you have this, in, in fact, like you're alluding to even this capacity to, to travel to these um, dimensions, you know, to pure lands and, and the like, and and obviously from a Western point of view, this is like absolutely an immediate deal breaker because how can any mind, you know, differentiate from the brain and body? But I've had these types of experiences. I've also talked to a number of people I trust deeply who've had these types of experiences, and they're they're utterly, completely valid and, and really mind blowing, really mind opening, where you can avail yourself to working with dimensions of mind that are no longer so exclusively identified with form or even what we know of as this, as this earthly plane. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I find it, I find it really compelling. Um, I, I love the way, especially now when I read about Excel studies, I love the way it just completely stretches my mind. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm trained I have a fair amount of training in science. I studied physics for a number of years, and, and so I have a tremendous appreciation for science and still do um, And so I I love the way it this material just stretches my mind because Again, as, as a westerner brought up into the cult of scientific materialism I'm always noticing this the monumental force of this dark side, you know, how I've been inculcated to see the world in this kind of flatland way. And so, these teachings for me, the way I use them, Stephen, is is, is just ways to continue to blow my mind further and further open. It's like, you know, what are they talking about here? What's really going on here? And so, it challenges my worldview. It continues to do that, it continues to stretch me. It's like a a mental yoga. You know, I assume these cognitive um, postures, mudras, asanas that stretch me. And then as I continue to open that way, then these dimensions become more and more available to me in my experience. Um, and as you're mentioning, mostly in the dream state where boundaries are released, um, we have this capacity to do things that, that are not so restrictive as, a, as within a waking consciousness. So um, yeah, I'm not sure where else you want to run with that, but that's kind of what comes to mind along those lines.
0: Yeah, it's fascinating. You use the word two, three times now, and it's something you often use in your writing and speaking Western, you're talking about the West and so on, and then you use the word cult of scientific materialism. Is is Western civilization for you synonymous with scientific materialism?
1: Oh, you know, these conflations are, they're starting to lose their boundaries now with globalization, right? You know, um, Eastern, Western, like where do you really draw the line on that sort of thing? But really in the West, if we take a close look, we, we live largely in the Western world and the legacy of, of the Greek intellectual tradition. We, we largely live under the legacy of Aristotle. I mean, even the way we think is dictated by Aristotle's laws of thoughts. And so there's tremendous elegance power to what the Greeks brought in, into the world. But um, you know, during this kind of axial age, there, there was just as much um, genius breakthrough taking place in the East um, when the great Contemplative traditions that we now know most of them were actually arising at the same time. So I, I, I use those terms less and less with less and less authority these days because of the process you know, of, of globalization that I do think, yes, unfortunately, um, largely because of the extraordinary success and power of um, the scientific method. And again, I, not again, but I remember a physicist once said very um, potently to me, he said, you know, there's no tyranny as great is the tyranny of success. That's a really interesting statement. And, and I think the tyranny of the success of the scientific method is in fact tyrannical. That, that we therefore take the nobility of science and pervert it into ignoble scientism, you know, and the absolutism and all the ways that the scientific method then comes to dominate, dismiss, you know, all the states of mind and reality that their methodology can't fully articulate or explain. and so. So much to say here. I think there's, you know, obviously um, tremendous promise to the whole scientific agenda. There's nothing wrong with science. I had a, a long conversation with my uh, dear friend Alan Wallace on this, who writes probably more elegantly than anybody else on this topic, and I completely agree with him when he said, you know, there's no issue whatsoever with science. The issue is more with scientists. Science itself is a noble enterprise. It's empirical. It's based on experience. It's based on, on, you know, what the wisdom traditions would call direct valid um, perception, direct valid cognition. The issue is not with science, the issue is with scientists and and the way science is actually used. I mean, if we define it very, very carefully um, and my friend Evan Thompson would would spar with us on this, I think we could cautiously cautiously say that some of these wisdom traditions are, are scientific in nature in the sense that they're empirical in nature. So anyway, I'm kind of circumambulating your question but that's kind of what comes to mind around all that that uh yeah the globalization thing is being dismembered just kind of um lessened and i think the opening around that is a very healthy one Mm -hmm. so i'm not entirely sure that's what you're asking but that's what comes to mind
0: well i suppose it was a, a disambiguation of of terms in a way i think western civilization or the history of let's say we say european uh the trajectory of european thought Includes, of course, I think, even from the Greek time, quite a lot of uh, transpersonal and multidimensional and entity and yeah, yeah ontologies and so on. Even if we think of the biblical accounts, for example, which were held to be literally literally the case through much of you know the, the history of European thought, scientific method relatively recent, and you've further just said that that itself perhaps not the problem. But when you said the word cult of scientific materialism, this this clinging to the only valid means of establishing truth being something we can prove materially. That seems to be your the thing that you are criticizing in the way in which that can be used in a sort of exclusive way by some scientists. So I'm just curious how you went from West to some scientists privileging their means of truth telling.
1: Yeah, well, you know, again, I think it's, to me, it's the issue of, of the reification of their, of their systems, you know, that their, the, the clamor for explanatory power can be such that um, the prowess of that approach um, can become indeed absolutistic, you know, where it really does become so dominating that it becomes dismissive of other states. And that's where I reject against that. That's where I think it's just extraordinarily arrogant that these Eurocentric principally a, a ways of looking at reality are the only way. And that you, you know, you dismiss the slanty-eyed version of reality, you dismiss these other domains that are simply, you know, using different um, methods of knowledge acquisition um, and revealing truths that are not amenable to the principles of classic scientific reductionism. So that's why I, I think it's viable to talk about the cult of scientific materialism, because it's actually based a lot on belief structures. You know, they, they seem to, they proclaim objectivity, but there's a tremendous amount of literature data about confirmation bias and all the, all the things in science that are hard, that are far from being objective. You know, they claim objectivity, but they fall into a whole host of performative contradictions where they profess things that are, that are just fundamentally not even resonance with their deeper underlying, um, you know, kind of approaches. So. Yeah, I'm not sure exactly where you want to go with this. I, again, I have tremendous respect for it, but I, I think, you know, the near enemy of articulation is reification. That you know, the great gift of these of these, intellects and these scholars and scientists. And again, there, I, I love hanging out with them because they're so bloody smart. But one of the issues I see is they just take everything so, um, bloody solid, uh, solidly, so seriously that you know, they the the, the tendency to reify becomes such. That I think that's pretty problematic and I argue I, I really that a lot of this is driven by unconscious psychological processes. I mean, one case in point would be I think that one of the, the main reasons physicists are, are looking for the irreducible subatomic particle out there. Is that by immediate implication, it means there has to be something in here. You can't have self without other And so if you can find something out there, that means there's something in here. If you can't find it, what does that do within here. And that's why physicists like John Wheeler came to these staggering conclusions. Well, there is no out there, out there. And then, okay, well, that's, that's interesting. What does that mean in here? Well, theref- therefore, there's no in here, in here. And so therefore, that kind of stuff, I totally groove on that. I mean, especially the quantum physics, the, the really deep quantum thinkers, whoa. you know, I mean, they were they were talking about principles of reality that are highly in harmony with the mystical approaches to the world. So this is always a very tricky thing. It's very compelling, it's very provocative material, but it's also very dicey. You can fall into all kinds of category errors and you know, ways of conflating one to the other, trying to reduce one to the other. We have to be, I think, very careful about that sort of thing. So to me, it's like, you know, can we centrifuge out the light from the dark? Can we work with the genius of the scientific method and get rid of um, the detritus, the, the, the debris that, that really occludes it, obscures it, and then can be you know, fundamentally problematic.
0: Mm, yeah. That's yeah, that's very interesting. I find it difficult to reduce the whole of Western intellectual and spiritual thought to the cult of scientific materialism. I think that might be a false equivalency. Yes, but
1: I think I think, it's, it's, but your points about agree.
0: but your points about spiritual about the cult of scientific materialism, I think, stand. But to, to try to conflate that with or to try to equate that with the West, I think is a little um
1: yeah. Or yeah, too generalized, well, too fastile. I I would agree with you there. Yes. And that's always the issue when we make these kind of orienting state general orienting statements where where, yes, in, in that respect, I really would agree with it's never that tidy, is it? I mean, we no. have all these different streams that come into play, but I think there's there's room for making these types of proclamations if they're uttered carefully. And so yeah, I mean I agree with you with that with that interjection that you want. Yeah.
0: That's uh, yeah. such yeah. a fascinating you point you made that. What if science would find nothing out there and therefore nothing in here, in the subject-object sense? What if the greatest barrier to science might be this, might be the precise insight that, say, Buddhism is uh, is offering? I think that's a fascinating point.
1: Yeah, yeah, and let's yeah, I mean, it, it it may have that kind of potential because you know they both are looking for reality, whether it will be somehow. Reduce is not the correct, right word, but kind of brought together to articulate the same reality. I think that's that's suspect. But again, the method to me what's most important with both are the methods of investigation and, and that's what I really appreciate tremendously about science and in fact Buddhism or the deep content contemplative traditions. It's not just this dogmatic um, believe it thing. It's it gives you um, Transformation transformational methodologies, ways where you could actualize, you know, almost you could say test the theories, test the hypotheses against your own experience. And that to me is the, really the, the beauty of both, that you don't have to take anything at face value. Um, even the Buddha him said, Buddha himself allegedly said, as he was dying, you know, I've given you everything. Um, test my teachings against your own experience, work out your own salvation with diligence. And to me, that that's the real beauty, is we can take these professed theories, hypotheses, or a lot, we can bring it into retreat, we can bring it into the cushion, and we can see if, in fact, these resonate with our own um, apparatus, you know, with our own investigations. Mm-hmm. That, to me, is the gift. Yeah, amazing.
0: I'm curious, you know, something I thought when I was learning more about, about you was your Initial degree, as you said, was in classical piano.
1: Yeah, I'm a classical pianist, yeah. Uh,
0: Yeah, and to a very high level, actually. And the way in which you, and this is something I'd like to return to a bit later when we talk about lucid dreaming uh, in particular, uh, the the way you present the learning process of acquiring the skill of lucid dreaming, you talk about doing the work and you talk about, you have this uh, kind of practice orientation, a very confidence, in other words, that you can attain this apparently mystical, at first glance, Skill, And I think music to many people is a similarly mystical, intangible skill to behold a, a great musician as an untrained person. It really does look like something akin to lucid dreaming or, or, or you know, meditational attainments in some ways, in the sense of its otherness or its strangeness. I'm wondering if, if you see any connection between your high degree of skill that you obtained in classical concert piano playing and your meditation progress or meditation practice or your approach to uh, a, a, that basket of activities you've engaged uh, in
1: yeah that's an interesting one um yeah I, I haven't thought about that before but i definitely think there's some truth to that i mean on one level it could be as, as straightforward as the, the levels of discipline that are involved you know i think again it, going back to what my parents did for me and my parents were eastern european i was brought up in a highly disciplined environment very loving but very disciplined and I still think that's one of the greatest gifts I've always given was just this kind of training in, in harnessing the power of discipline. And so along those lines, yeah, for sure, on that level, the, ex, you know, the countless hours spent in the practice room, the, um, what I'm thinking of in particular here, for those of you who may be interested in the piano repertoire or you know, Franz Liszt wrote this unbelievable set of of studies called the transcendental etudes which you know appropriately named where you they're they're so fiendishly difficult technically that they're called transcendental because you have to have a transcendental technique in order to get the music off the page under your fingers transcend the technique and actually perform the art and and so along those lines there's definitely a correlation between that and also even deeper spiritual levels you know, like the the source of creativity. Where does real um, great composition come from? Where does real great performance come from? You know, like when I'm um, performing and I enter the zone, this flow state. You know that becomes a very spiritual experience because I, at that point I'm not I'm not playing the music. The music is playing me. I mm-hmm. step aside and it becomes a very transpersonal, egoless experience. You enter this flow state, the zone where something else is taking over. It's really a kind of meditation in action or samadhi in, in the art form, very similar to meditation states for sure. Um, and, but here's one area where it's different. And, and I think this is an important interjection because yes, while there are tremendous similarities between any discipline in the, in the discipline of meditation, there are, there are differences in, in, in this one, I think really important way. And that is on a relative level, we can look at proficiency in lucid dreaming dream yoga proficiency in mind states um in the meditative path altogether as something that's acquired through practice you know you just the more you do it you better get it the better you get pretty kind of common over-the-counter relative understanding of meditation but there's another way where the meditative arts are different from these other disciplines and i think this is important and that a more absolute approach to look at what happens in meditation is it's not a, a process of acquisition, it's a process of subtraction, it's a process of negation. And by this, what I mean is that, as you know, one of the great radical proclamations of the non wisdom traditions is that these qualities of the mind, including lucidity, which you know I mostly give as a trajectory of development and practice, this is actually the natural state. Lucid dreams are the natural state of dreaming. Being naturally spontaneous, aware, present, and awake—that's actually the natural state. And so, therefore, you know what you do on the meditative path. On one level, yes, there's you do this this provisional training, but on another level, the most you know, the perhaps the irreducible instruction is one of openness and relaxation, where you just simply have to open and almost literally discover these natural qualities. This is important because for spiritual practitioners this can really uh, uh, give them a, a greater understanding of what they're actually doing on the path, that they're actually working to open the aperture of their hearts and minds to the extent that these natural qualities arise forth. And therefore, when they do these, these you know, adventitious defilements, these secondary um, kind of obscurations that uh, occlude these states, they're gradually just, they're shed, they're dropped away. And then the natural lucidity of the mind comes forth the natural presence of the mind comes forth i think there's a lot of people um, that still don't quite understand that that if you simply are given the proper instructions in terms of how to open and relax all these qualities just naturally unfold you become a natural lucid dreamer you become naturally present i mean that the nature of the mind actually is to be present so the other reason this is so important is that we've been trained into non-lucidity. We've been trained into distraction. We've been trained into confusion. And this, this is important because it, it therefore, um, I mean, one other thing that it reveals to us is that whether we know it or not, we're always practicing, we're always meditating. And in this regard, we're, we're doing a kind of samsaric meditation where we're just constantly capitulating Strengthening the mindlessness muscle, strengthening the non-lucidity muscle. That's just our default. I mean, as you know, neurologists actually call this default mode network. That's just where we go. But that's not the natural place. That's the place actually we've been trained to go, supported by our culture and everything else. And so I think this is helpful to understand in the in the West, because otherwise you get you get too theistic in your aspirations, oh, if I just try hard enough, and again, I'm not dismissing the relative validity of that, but if you're, if you're striving too hard for something that's always already present, striving itself fundamentally becomes the only obstacle. And so enlightenment therefore becomes a false destination because what you're looking for is already here. Um, and so I, I throw, you know, I'm using this to spin back to a topic I think is really important because otherwise we get involved on the spiritual path to where well, it's a spiritual path to nowhere or now here. We just simply have to open, relax, realize that everything we're possibly looking for is just right in front of us. Um, as T.S. Eliot said in the Four Quartets, You know, to arrive where we began and just seeing it for the first time. So I'm using what you asked as a platform to talk about what I think is a really important topic that I don't hear enough in the spiritual communities these days, that if we, if we just simply open um, expand, relax, in like fact, some definitions of the Buddha outside of the awakened one is the opened one. You open to such an extent that you realize that these natural qualities are already inherent within you. And that's where this is different from the piano and everything else, right? I mean, I can sit, I can sit at my keyboard for 100 years, and if I don't practice, I'm not going to get better. I can sit on the cushion, somebody gives me proper instruction about how to maintain posture, uh, posture I'm going to get better. And so therefore the, the place of effort and effortlessness, that's what separates meditation from traditional um, levels of proficiency.
0: And speaking of, uh, I suppose, spontaneous epiphanies, you had quite, your first spiritual opening did not go well for you. It started well, but didn't end well. Can you tell us a bit about, Yeah. I it was in your very early twenties, perhaps even 20. Yeah. Uh, you yeah. had a tremendous opening. Can you tell us about that?
1: Yeah, thanks for asking. Yeah, that was actually my second one. The first one was the, fir- the one I talked about when I did my TM thing and, and my mind broke open. So the one you're talking about was actually a, the, the so-called bigger one um, kind of metanoia breakthrough. And so, yeah, so this was a cool one. Also interestingly, Steven connected to this channeling thing. So I, I took a year off. I did, I did a five-year double degree undergraduate thing. Um, I wanted to go to med school and I got my degree in music at the same time. And I took, a, I took a year off just to catch my breath to figure out, you know, like, what am I going to do now? And so it was a profoundly impactful year because I spent the first six months of that year working as a kind of a security person um, in a maximum federal prison. So that was a really charged experience. And then I spent the second year working in, in surgery as an or surgical or, um, orderly because, again, I was thinking about med school. And also at that time i was reading that's when i was reading this this edgar casey self material stuff so i was kind of into this whole channeling thing and and then yeah one day for various reasons i'm not 100 percent sure what happened but my mind just um kind of popped open and i entered this so-called altered state parenthetically I, not, I no longer see that as an altered state. I, I actually think I dropped into the natural state, somewhat akin to what I was saying earlier. It was only altered in counter distinction. In other words, I mm. came after that to realize this is the altered state. I fell into the natural state. Do you mean Rigpa? And, yeah, I think so, yeah. Um, it's hard to say for sure um, exactly what happened, but there was definitely some landing into some truer dimension of reality. and. And part of what took place was, you know, just the, the virtual constant lucidity at night, you know, just constant lucid dreams, even lucid sleep experiences. Um, correlative to that, and this is where it gets interesting, correlative to that was my daytime experience became more and more dreamlike or illusory. And and so at first it was like, like hey, wow, this is really cool. You know, this it was just magical. And, and it felt, there were times, I, I remember it so well. I, there were many times when I felt The world was completely alive, you know, sending me messages all the time. um, What Buddhism actually calls symbolic guru where the phenomenal world becomes your teacher. And it was absolutely magical dimension. But that was the bliss that you were talking about, the promise, the peril. And and this is worth throwing in because this may be of some interest to people who have similar sorts of experiences. The peril became. After a while, because dreamlike, in a real way, my dreamlike experience, my, dream, my nighttime dreams were becoming more real. My daily real experience was becoming more dreamlike. And eventually it got to the point where I couldn't tell the difference anymore. Um, there was just this kind of democratic equanimous relationship to, to all states of consciousness. In other words, I couldn't tell when I was awake or asleep. And I did not have the infrastructure to handle that. I, I wasn't prepped enough and so what turned out, what started out is, is such a magical experience. Maybe, hey, maybe I'm you know, enlightened. In, in a couple of weeks, he realized, hey, maybe I'm going insane. It's like, I don't know what's real anymore. And so, I mean, R.D. Lang, you know, the British psychiatrist once famously said, right? The mystic swims in the same ocean where the psychotic drowns. Well, I, start, I started swimming, I ended up drowning because it was like, what's real? Uh, and so I, I lost my bearings. And I started to freak out. It was like, WTF is going on here. Um, and so I, I shut it down, um, literally forced it down. I took a two-week leave from my job as the surgical orderly. I was living in Michigan at the time, and I basically dropped um, into my Volkswagen Beetle. I raced out here to Colorado. And as I playfully say, I, I, I basically uh, skied and drank my way back to sanity, <laughs> or to whatever this is, right? <laughs> And so I came back, you know, I reestablished some sense of footing forcefully, and then, then it was like, okay, let's let. What was that? And I started slowly dipping my toes back into this, this trans whatever you want to call it trans personal experience, and that's where I entered a really challenging time because I, you know, the Buddhist, and this is worth situating contextually, in the Buddhist tradition they talk about three very important pedagogical stages of understanding, experience, and realization. Understanding is when you read and you study and you learn and you create the kind of infrastructure. When you have enough of that, then sooner or later you'll have an experience. Experiences are fantastic if they're related to properly. That's a possible source of discussion because if you relate to experiences improperly, they can also be very damaging. But experiences by definition, yam in Tibetan, they always have a beginning and an end. In other words, they're impermanent. The final fruition is is tokpa realization. That's when the experience becomes stable and it's this constancy. And so what happened to me is I had the experience before I had the understanding. And that's why the experience, instead of really being held within the, the sanctuary of proper understanding, I had no understanding. I had no doctrinal infrastructure. And so it was, it was problematic. It was like, you know, am I really going crazy here? And so I I entered a very challenging five, six year period where I, I wasn't sure if I could hold my, you know if my psychic structure could hold this together because it was like, what was that? And then, you know, through whatever good karma, serendipity, I came across some teachers, some people gradually found my way somewhat really in conjunction with that serendipitous um, approach. I, I, I began a somewhat systematic study of the world's contemplative traditions because I figured maybe they can help me here. And one day I started reading about Buddhism and, and just found myself resonating, You know, like, whoa, geez, the Buddha, the awakened one, whoa, awake in relation to what? So immediately that resonated with my experience because awakening had something to do with that, and then when I came across dream yoga, oh my gosh, it was like, holy moly. And then the practice of illusory body, illusory form, it completely articulated what I had experienced. And so then I began the process of retrofitting the understanding that I should have had prior to the experience. And that, that's why I drank the Tibetan Buddhist Kool-Aid, right? Because it's like, whoa, baby, this, this doctrine, this set of teachings completely articulated this experience, that's a big deal. And so I said, well, this may be, you know, maybe I'm a Buddhist, right? And so because of that, I, I, I threw my, um, all my apples into that basket. And I'm a, a you know, deep, serious, concerted student of Tibetan Buddhism, but also have a wide integral approach to things. But yeah, so yeah, something like that. Hmm. Yeah, fascinating. And
0: your study of, of Buddhism and Tibetan Buddhism in particular did go really rather deep and you traveled extensively through India, Nepal and Bhutan and Tibet and engaged, in fact, in a three-year retreat at one point also. Um, I'm curious. I know you're a longtime student of the Shambhala um, organization or in the Shambhala organization.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Can you take us through those initial teachers that you encountered? I know you've, you've had teachings from many great masters. I believe you started in Zen initially, was your first uh, practice. No, my,
1: no, my first, I didn't have a ton of experience in Zen. Um, you know, my first gig, Stephen, was with was with the TM people. I, I hung a little bit out with the Zenies when I moved here to Boulder. It didn't speak to me that much. I, I found their approach a little bit too self-serious, a little bit too austere and tight. Don't get me wrong, I adore Zen. I adore it, but it just didn't speak to me. So it was mostly TM, then this long episode of like, I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> and then I finally stumbled across some some teachers that really were very impactful for me <laughs> can you like but who can you tell us like what's the, the story how did it uh yeah let me see you know um well you know i came out here to colorado when the whole shambhala thing it wasn't really emphasized shambhala wasn't really that strong it was more vajra Datu. so the shambhala thing really didn't come into play later and by the way, I have nothing to do with that scene anymore. I, I pulled away from that some seven years ago when I started to snuff out what, what eventually broke loose. Um, I want to be a little careful about what I say around that because I have tremendous respect for the integrity of the Shambhala teachings per se. I just think the implementation propagation over the last couple of years has been wildly askew in my humble estimation, just my opinion. But Trungpa Rinpoche, in my opinion, was a genius, um, and I think the essence of those teachings were spot on, but unfortunately, it just got a little bit distorted. So, yeah, you know, like you said, I I I spent quite a bit of time in Asia. I worked in the embassy clinic in Kathmandu. I had the great good fortune to start a nonprofit charitable foundation that works in in monasteries, orphanages around the world, mostly in Asia. And so, I've not only have I traveled in these areas, but I've also set up clinics. Um, and worked in these areas extensively. And that's given me tremendous opportunity to hang out with some amazing individuals. You know, Tranga Rinpoche is one of my, I'm a mostly a Kagyu Nyingma practitioner. Tranga Rinpoche is my, one of my main teachers. He put me into three-year retreat. kempel Tsuchum Gamsa Rinpoche, Pondup Rinpoche. And then, you know, the elite Nyingma masters, especially the contemporaneous ones, Minjur Rinpoche, Tsungur Rinpoche and others, you know, I feel so unbelievably fortunate to have these great beings in my life and, and continuing to inspire and teach me. And so, yeah, I mean, to, to back put a little bit, I, I just um, started to develop more and more connections to these remarkable individuals and became more and more convinced that there's, hey, there's something really going on here, right? And especially when I was writing uh, my second big book, uh, Preparing to Die, which is a little bit encyclopedia um, you know, practical spiritual approaches for death. One of the things I did in that book, as you may know, you know, I, I had a fantastic opportunity to interview um, somewhat extensively um, 20 meditation masters. I mean, really amazing individuals. And every time, you know, every time I had a chance to hang out with them, I realized, and I don't know what these people know, but I want to know what I want to be like them. You know they know something i don't and especially when i was interviewing them about challenging topics around death they were just utterly unflappable you know just this this conviction of knowledge and confidence that was really inspiring to me so yeah i'm not sure where you want me to run with that but i i feel so deeply fortunate to have had and continue to have just amazing you know amazing wisdom forces from mostly the buddhist tradition but I've, I've expanded my horizons over the last couple of years, um, not in any way to replace, but to augment and supplement my passion for Tibetan Buddhism. As I alluded to earlier, you know, Nand, Nandu Shaiva Tantra, um, even the Kaduma tradition, mystical Judaism. Um, I, I'm just, it's like the Buddha said, you know, hey, I'll take truth wherever I can get it. And even the Buddha said, wherever you see the, hear the truth, you will hear my Dharma. And so, even though I am a card-carrying Tibetan Buddhist, uh, my aperture is open enough where I don't care who's speaking the truth, I'm going to listen, right? I just find, as the Zen people say, you know, chase two rabbits, catch none. So, you know, if I'm going to catch that one rabbit, so to speak, it, it really does help to commit, to marry this tradition, to, pay, to, to kind of use the power of blessing and lineage and tradition. There's a lot of power to that. Um, so I try to walk both of those, you know, tremendous allegiance to the elegance and beauty of, of the Tibetan Buddhist lineage and tradition. But I'm also always augmenting it with other wisdom traditions and philosophy, psychology, science, and the like, you know. That's what makes it so interesting to me that I mean, there's so many tributaries of knowledge and wisdom and they all can really support each other. And uh, another reason why I'm a huge fan of integral theory, integral, integral ways of, of relating to things, You know, I'll take it wherever I can get it. Oh, so many questions
0: come out of that. Uh, With whom and by what means are you pursuing your non-dual Shaivistic studies?
1: Oh, well, you know, I I don't have a personal teacher in that realm, but I have a bunch of really great friends who are pretty savvy. Uh, Christopher Wallace, who you may know, Recognition Sutras, Tantra Illuminated. Ben Williams, Um, you know, then I read the classic texts, Samaraja, Abhinavagupta, and that whole thing. So I I do not have an an active lineage teacher. I mean, Rupert Spira, I'm a huge, I'm a a huge fan. I'm a fan of his work. You probably know him. Um, He's somewhat along those lines. I wouldn't call him my teacher, but I do like what he has to say. So most of my knowledge along those lines comes from those people and those texts um I don't have a living teacher in that tradition. In your um
0: 2015 speech on which you have on YouTube very interesting the now and future of Buddhism.
1: Oh that was through the integral um uh, symposium yeah that's yeah. still out there okay.
0: You're talking about uh, well the now and future of Buddhism particularly I think in America and you know Europe and places of that kind you emphasize the conflation of Buddhism and mindfulness. And one of the criteria you listed as being a key thing is in evaluating a meditation instructor, for example, Uh or a translator, for example, um, was lineage backing. You used the term, and you talked about that being also an essential way of sort of measuring where your devotion should head. Uh, You you used the term "idiot surrender," was the term you used. Very interesting. (laughs) And you're sort of yeah, as a critique of something. And I'm curious, on it's unusually on your site. I couldn't see the, um, usually for the Buddhist uh, approach, there's this emphasis of lineage, right? And lineage backing, and these are my teachers and so on. And this is that. Yeah. So I'm curious how you see yourself in that lens, you know, that you were you know, putting forth in that speech of lineage backing and so on being so essential. I'm curious how you see yourself placed there.
1: Oh, my, you yes, have yes, some very interesting questions. Yeah, that <clears throat> that particular um talk, if I remember properly, was from a a fourth turning conference that Ken Wilber put on as he was starting to write and teach a lot about his version of the fourth turning. And um, yeah, I might have to ping some some stuff back at you to see exactly what you're looking for here. If I remember correctly, what I was talking about there was, it's very difficult, right, I I should say it's, it can be challenging, to um, locate authenticity in, in current teachers and, and you know, trajectories of wisdom. And, and, and interestingly enough, in the Tibetan, this is worth throwing in, in the Tibetan, actually in the Buddhist uh, approach altogether, especially in, in uh, um, written texts, uh, it may be somewhat surprising to hear that originality is actually considered a little bit suspect. Um, and that's not to say, it's a very interesting statement because on one level, if you don't have originality, if you don't bring in tributaries of, of modernity and, and infuse knowledge with, with, you know, if you don't update it, you know, if things don't evolve, they go extinct. But the reason I say that is that there, there's, there's a lot of um, problems happening in this Western world. Maybe you have noticed, even in the Shambhala tradition, there are a lot of people that get very seriously hurt by uh, teachers, who come out and proclaim to be realized they develop this whole little cult thing and then people get you know really pretty traumatized about that you know all about those sorts of things and so one of the things that ken and i ken Wilbur and i were talking about um were in fact ways to try to bring about legitimacy and authenticity and in the spiritual business one way to do that is tradition again it's not the only way right because when the buddha came about he broke from the brahmanical tradition and he was a rebel buddha so you have to be careful how you ping this stuff. But in this day and age, on one level lineage and tradition, not always, but it's almost as close as you can get to some level of assurance that there's validity to this particular trajectory. Otherwise, you know, maybe it may not have been around for 1,000 or 2,000 years. There's probably something going on. And in fact, Stephen, just as you know, look, look over the last 15, 20 years, at all these self-proclaimed messiahs and self-authenticated gurus that flash like meteors across the sky and then they flame out because eventually, you know, they their limitations are are, are revealed. So this is a delicate issue, and, and I'm certainly not going to speak with complete authority, but um, I, I do believe that lineage backing is one of the more Kind of safer ways to approach looking for authenticity in in a body of teachings or a teacher. What in fact is their lineage? What in fact is their tradition? And when, when I talk about idiot surrender there is that it, it, again, there's like you' were saying, there's so many things to talk about here. At the highest levels uh, of of the non-dual traditions, especially in, in Tibetan Buddhism, which I can speak with a little bit more authority about one of the most effective ways to um, really actualize awakening is is actually devotion surrender you know surrendering to a greater um, being surrendering to a greater mind force whatever you want to call it and, and you can just imagine the problem and the promise and peril in that right because you know our this is what I talk about is idiot surrender you know our, when you surrender are you then actually um, surrendering to a, a stream or a lineage that's actually authentic, or are you surrendering to a, a Jonestown kind of character, right? And so um, I'll, I'll pause for a second and see if this is where you want to take this. It's just to me, it's like, you know, how can we find authenticity in teachers and in traditions? Lineage is one way, tradition is one way. I'm not saying it's the only way, but it's one way. Others would be if you want to go here, you know, the ability to infuse, allow other tributaries to come in and actually you know, not feel threatened with other voices coming into the community, assessing the, the quality of the students in the community, assessing um, kind of you know, looking at metrics for service in the world, compassion, enlightened activity. I, I do think that there are ways you can save yourself some trouble and maybe a heck of a lot of pain by looking at some of these ways, because it's very easy, you know, um, there's all kinds of projection that takes place in this stuff. As you know, shadow, shadows in the both ways: shadow hugging, shadow boxing, where we confer, we project, um, you know, onto other people. And sometimes it's it's not sometimes often it's not fair to the teacher themselves. They become the unwitting object of your projections. And so what I what I try to do, I think what I was trying to say in this 2015 thing was just taking a little bit more personal responsibility um, for what we get into. Are we going into these situations with open eyes? Um, And if we do so, and we're not afraid to ask questions, we're not afraid to be critical. And if people don't respond to critical questions, that's a warning sign. There's a bunch of things, both classically that I've read and heard from other people, things I've, I've derived from my own experience that I think can be very helpful for people because otherwise they go into these things. And as you know, you're, you're seriously hurt because when you open to that extent and then you get so violated, let alone, I can't even imagine what it's like when there's the, the physical barriers being violated, the sexual abuses, you compound that on top of the spiritual psychological violations, you've got people that are traumatized for, for a, a really you know, a large part of their lives. So I, I'm not sure that's entirely what you're asking, Stephen, but that's kind of what I'm hearing.
0: Yeah, it's very interesting. I suppose what I was asking directly was, um, do you consider yourself to have lineage backing? And if so, what is it? Oh, geez.
1: (laughs) you you got some good questions. I've never...
0: I ask only because it was one of the criteria you emphasized in your means of evaluating teachers. But I should perhaps add that I do completely agree with you that the... It, it's not a sufficient uh, condition for yeah, trust, because, as we well know, we could add to the list of, of self-realized teachers who go off the rails, lineage tulku's with the most impeccable uh, training, exactly. uh, or, exactly. uh, also have done uh, exactly. arguably as well, much damage, including, you know, uh, yeah. uh, allegedly your previous teachers uh, and the sakyang and so on yeah,
1: absolutely well the sakyang was never my teacher the vijatara was um the sakyang was wasn't but again what you say I, I love it what you're saying is spot on exactly so you can have lineage backing like Sogel Rinpoche or like these people and they still go up in flames so there you go so how valid is that metric well this is what makes the whole thing so bloody complicated Do I feel like I have that backing? That's a very interesting, tricky question. I I try to, to whatever extent I can by always consulting with my teachers, to whatever extent I can, Um, especially in my early years when I was cutting my teeth as a writer and a teacher and and I never really had aspirations to be either. It's just kind of what happened. you know. Honestly, if I had my druthers, I would just disappear somewhere and meditate and write and and nobody would ever see me again. (laughs) I, I would be very happy with that. But I I try to the best of my ability to um, look at my blind spots, which you know not easy to do. I confer with my teachers as often as I can. Um, I often ask them. I ask for permission, this sort of thing. And I, I have done that so long that that um, eventually there there is a type of, of both confidence and. Um, yeah, I mean you could say ineffable backing because you get you get feedback from the phenomenal world. You really do. You know, I mean if you're I mean, this may seem somewhat new agey, but it hasn't been in my experience that if you're doing if the universe is on your side, you're doing what you're you know kind of supposed to do, I have found that my my world, and my life is ringed with with auspicious coincidence, tendril. Conversely, I find that when I'm not when the universe is not on my side coincidence is replaced by accidents. And I start to get, you know, I get feedback from the phenomenal world. I get feedback from my dreams. And so this ties in a little bit earlier to what you were asking around dreams. Sometimes I get this feedback in the dream arena. So for instance, I, you know, I will have a lucid or hyper lucid dream where someone like His Holiness Karmapa will be there just as vibrant and real as if I'm talking to you right here or now. And I will ask in this dream in a completely lucid way questions. And then through that medium in the dream, I get you know this kind of guidance. Is that coming from me? Is that coming from some entity infusing my space? That's a, a topic that may be worth considering. Mm-hmm. But one way or the other, I, I try to do as many reality checks as I can. And every once in a while I get them, I get I get a little smackdown, you know, and it's like, okay, not what I wanted to hear, but what I needed to hear. And I go look my wounds and I come back and you know I try to maintain it. So do I have lineage backing? I, that's a tricky one. I, I try to remain open and as, as receptive and, mo- and modest as I can. Um, I will take feedback any day of the week if it's delivered appropriately. Can I say the entire lineage is behind me? Who knows? But, you know, so far I'm still here. Lightning bolts haven't struck me from this planet. So, you know, maybe I'm okay for a few more weeks. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah. That's great. So. <laughs> I'm 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 looking at the time. I'm, I'm aware it's limited, and yeah, we got a few. You've brought up uh, there uh, Shambhala, and you've brought up you know Sogyal, uh, Rinpoche. Yeah. Of course, these are uh, recent uh, scandals, if you will, in uh, the Buddhist uh, world. Perhaps not so recent in many in many ways, actually. It must have been very difficult leaving Shambhala. Uh, sn- you, you, you said you were to sniff something out that you didn't like, not in the teachings exactly, but in the organizational structure, in the way the teachings were being propagated, things that you, you said would later come out, and you began to sniff those things out. And so you parted ways with that organization. I'm curious what that process was like for you. That, I can imagine, would have been a very difficult process on several levels. Not only the sorts of human relationships that You might be threatening in a certain sense or or jeopardizing uh, you know with your conscience acting on your conscience like that but also certain religious vows and a history i suppose of religious practice within a certain context so i'm curious what that process was like you know what was the sniffing out process i understand you have to be very careful so perhaps you know your your own personal experience is sufficient now what was that schism like between you and shambhala
1: yeah Yeah, I I tread in these waters very carefully and lightly because, first of all, this is all idiosyncratic. It's just me and my neurosis. It's just me and my stupidity. It's just me. So everything I'm saying here is just me. There are still, I I have so many dear, and this is actually what made it particularly difficult for me, um, was leaving so many of my, I wouldn't say leaving them, but stepping aside from such a fantastic community of people. the Shambhala community as a community is, is priceless. It's an amazing group of people. And I still, they're, they're still among the dearest um, entities in my entire life. I, I have such admiration and respect for them. So that was the hardest part. Leaving the teacher was not that terribly difficult because I never had that much of a connection to him from the beginning. Again, that's just me. Other people are still totally devoted. I never was. You're more of a
0: chug-yam guy, would you say?
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. And 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 I, I, yeah, I mean, it was, that wasn't that super difficult for me because I didn't have that deep of a connection. It was more, you know, the challenge for me was was really just kicking the tires, looking underneath the hood and saying, hey, wait a second, you know, what's going on here? There's been all these, Red flags coming up for years, and, and you're just not looking at them. And then finally it just built up to the point And it's like, what are you doing here? Um, and, and that's when I just said, you know, I'm just utterly disingenuous. This is not where my heart is. And and yeah, while it was it was painful, it wasn't nearly as painful as other people who were deep within inner circles, who are deep within the court, who deep at his side. I my heart bleeds for those people. Um I've always been, and this may seem like a um, almost an irreconcilable statement to what I said earlier, even though I am completely in line and, and I, uh, I love tradition power lineage, I still invoke the blessings of the Karmakagyu. With all that said, I've, uh, I've always had a little bit of a Pratyeka Buddha streak, a little bit of a, I can do this on my own streak and um, on my own way. And so while I have been deeply committed, I've always been slightly I wouldn't say suspicious, but slightly on guard about organized anything. Cause you know, I, I'm a recovering Catholic. And, and so and so I have that history of like, yeah, organized. I've, been, I've seen the organized thing, been there, done that. And so even when I dipped into the community scene, I, there was always a little bit of like, eh, I, I'm not, I think so, but I'm not sure. I think so, but I'm not sure. And so therefore for me to leave, it wasn't super painful. The hardest part was leaving you know, this almost a daily connection to all these amazing individuals, and the schism and the sangha, that was painful, you know, just the split um, that took place in the community, that was really painful. So maybe that's all I want to say about that. I, I, I'm very careful about, it. I don't want to be derisive, I'm not polemical, I don't like to badmouth anything or anybody. Um, I'm sure people have, everybody has their own version on this, but, you know, I think, we may not want to go here now, but I think one of the most important things here that, that I always try to throw into the mix, and I've written about this, um, I've written an article on the evolution of abuse, You know, looking at this stuff from an integral perspective. So I get very interested when this sort of stuff happens. It's like, what's going on here? You know, how, how can someone allegedly so spiritually evolved can be such an emotional retard, uh, can be so emotionally underdeveloped? And so I'll just throw this out and then we can either drop it or run with it a little bit. This is where I'm a huge fan of, of integral theory, integral works and the very powerful distinction that John well, Wellwood coined between waking up and growing up, that there's a difference between um, stages and or structures and states of consciousness. And if you think that, you know, pure spiritual development on a state level is it, well, get back to me in a couple of decades. Let me know how that goes. Because, you know, they're, they're the... The composition of the the, the human body, my matrix is really complex. It has horizontal and vertical trajectories of development and you can be very evolved in one vector and pretty unevolved in another. And that's what happens in these cases. As far as I can tell, I thought about this a ton. You can have a very high state level experience, not even realization. Remember understanding, experience, realization. You're not even realized, you're still experienced. So that's also one limitation. So you have that experience. And then what do you do unless you remain in silence and don't say or do or move or do anything? The minute you open your mouth or move, you have no choice but to express your experience, not even your realization within your structural level of development. That's where the crap show starts because authentic high level experience, no doubt, 100% no doubt, but you download it through the matrix of, you know, through the lens of, of your understanding, you have no choice. And that's where the problems come in. High mm-hmm. on one level, really low on the other and welcome to the world of spiritual abuse. Um, and it's not gonna stop until people are open to both these vectors of development, so-called Eastern, Western, or whatever you wanna call them. I think this is wildly important because it's the only thing I've ever come across that, that has helped me understand how can this possibly happen? So to me, that, that maybe is the, the point that I wanna drive here. There are, there are ways to explain this. Um, and, you know, there are therefore also ways for us to look a little bit more critically at sometimes the Eastern supremacy, because, you know, they're, they're East and West has their both their blind spots, their reductionist in their respective ways. And and I think the East sometimes can get a little bit blinded by this somewhat patriarchal, some of this this kind of particular trajectory of awakening that doesn't abide by a more complex look at the human structure. So, I mean, that's one of the ways I wrestle with this and play with it. Mm.
0: Yeah, thank you very much for sharing your your reflections on that. Andrew, it's been so fantastic talking with you. It's really amazing. Um, I'm aware of the time. So let me ask you, I, I said to you before you began that I had a pithy question to ask you at the end, but OK, okay. so you you did an interview with uh, a very interesting interview with Tammy Simon uh, oh, okay. around your yeah around your book
1: i'm I'm very let me interrupt i'm very flattered with the homework you've done you've listened to the 2015 thing you've done the interview thing you've read my book i applaud you for that because sometimes i get on these types of things and people don't even know how to pronounce my name so i'm flattered that you would take the time to do this and that's why i think your questions are so sensitive and and well articulated and thoughtful so anyway i just wanted to say that thank you
0: oh thank you andrew i appreciate that so in that uh interview with Tommy simon about your book dreams of light You said the the following uh, about dreams and dreams as a spiritual practice or a spiritually significant. You said, these are the most profound spiritual experiences I've had in my life. Mm -hmm. They echo like a big bang and inform and transform everything I do in my waking state. And then you went on to say, I'm no different to you. I'm not special. I've just done the work and anybody can do this work. Meaning the work to have those dreams. That was the context the work of dream yoga, I suppose. Let's say, hypothetically, right? Someone's in lockdown, as people are all over the world in my country and many other countries, and they want to do the work. Now, of course, the first thing m- m- should be said is to get Andrew's book, Dream Yoga, which details this in, <laughs> uh, a lot, but I did warn you it would be a pithy question, but
1: okay.
0: let's say, okay, I'm, I'm in lockdown uh, what's the hardcore boot camp version of the work from a standing start how long is it likely to take what's the regime let's say someone wants to get that down wants to really get to the point perhaps where they're having regular lucid dreams yeah. to the point where they can begin the uh, maneuvers of dream yoga which are built yeah. on that foundation
1: yeah great question my friend <clears throat> um Yeah, there, you know, there there are a number of, of on-ramps to this. I think the work itself, excuse me, is fundamentally inner work. It's fundamentally working with one's mind and heart in a more sensitive, introspective way. Because when we're working with dreams, what are we really working with? We're working with mind. What are dreams made of? They're made of your mind. You're simply working with your mind in a somewhat rarefied, distilled way. It's a distilled form of consciousness, but it's still nonetheless consciousness itself. And so I think one of the ways to <clears throat> work, to, to begin this kind of work is understanding what that work is all about. It's fundamentally about working with your mind and your heart, same word in Sanskrit, right? Chitta, heart, mind. And so therefore, with that said, you know, there's a number of kind of infrastructure, um, um, approaches in, in, in the world of dream yoga. There's a very powerful maxim that's really important. It says the preliminaries are more important than the main practice. The preliminaries are more important, you know, creating the proper bed, creating whatever you want to call it, the proper temple of sleep. And so this involves a number of things. It involves um, intentionality. Intentionality is colossal. Um, because that is literally what moves the mind in particular directions. So one of the most important things is actually having a heartfelt intention to do this inner work, to engage in this exploration, Um, and also conjoined with this is is the unbelievable power of belief. I mean, the the nocebo, placebo effect, we could talk so much about how powerful um, belief, mind effect really is, and so I say this because if we empower, again, this is somewhat ties into what we were talking about earlier. If we open the aperture of our awareness and, uh, you know, part of this kind of Western scientific wake-centric bias is that the only way you can viably explore mind and reality is through the waking state. Well, who says that? Wake-centric, mostly Eurocentric cultures, of which they're only less than 10%. I mean, Charles Laughlin, the great neuroanthropologist says estimates that of some 4,000 world cultures, over 90% are what he calls polyphasic, that they were a monophasic culture, which means uh, waking reality, that's it. Polyphasic means waking, dreaming, these other states are just as viable as this state. And so opening your heart, mind, realizing there are other avenues where we don't have to just Capitulate to this dismissive view we have in the West. You know, when we say, "Oh, it's just a dream," it's just a dream. That's a pejorative, dismissive statement. You can say, "Oh my gosh, it's just a dream." It's as it's as viable an opportunity to explore mind and reality as the waking state. So, I I cast a wide net at the outset to do this work. Don't, in my estimation, don't just rush to the techniques. Don't just rush to all these induction goodies. Yeah, you may have a little bit of hit and miss. But if you really want to have these things with constancy and regularity, you have to look in an integral ecological way. What are all the systemic factors that co-conspire to bring about both lucidity and non-lucidity? And so intentionality, belief, um, absolutely critical. And then within the context of what, you know, what we've been maintaining as, as spiritual wisdom, tradition work, so to speak, the power of meditation cannot be overstated because meditation is the practice of lucidity. Um, when we have you know, another way to talk about a non-lucid dream, a non-lucid dream is a mindless dream, a distracted dream. And so the, the main reason we're non-lucid at night is because we're non-lucid to the day. You know, we're, we're actually practicing, capitulating to non-lucidity and distraction all the time. So this is why studies have shown, and I've been in these studies, that meditators have more lucid dreams. In the mind of a meditation master, all their dreams are, are, not, are lucid. There's no such thing as a non-lucid dream. And so this is something, you know, not you're, you're non-lucid at night because you're non lucid during the day. So practice lucidity now. What Kabir said of death applies to dream. What is found now is found then. Become lucid to the contents of your mind now, and you will become lucid to the contents of your mind then. Um, and so yeah, I, I I say all this also um, within the kind of embrace of this powerful meditative um, aphorism or maxim, not too tight, not too loose, where you know, it's helpful, it's very powerful to have a sense of determination, effort, perseverance. Otherwise, dream yoga is not a yoga. It's not a practice, you're just flopping out. So there has to be some effort But on the other level, you know, if you're too tight, you're just gonna tie yourself into knots. And so I I say a really helpful way to work with all this is a lighthearted, playful, almost humorous way. You know, like, hey, what's gonna happen tonight? And enjoy it, have fun with it. Try, but don't try too hard. And then from there, once you create this kind of bed or framework of, of infrastructure practices, then you bring in the vast array of Eastern and Western induction methods, um, conjoined with good sleep hygiene, East and West, daytime induction techniques, East and West, nighttime induction techniques, East and West. And this is the way I roll with these, Stephen, that you know, um, as you know, as a student of these traditions, everything arises in these ecological codependent ways, codependent origination. And so we're non-lucid because of all these co-conspiratorial factors. We therefore, if you want regular, constant, good, good results, you have to really look wide and, and, and bring all these things into play. If you do that, non-lucidity doesn't, um, doesn't stand a chance, right? It, it, there's just no way you're not but going to have these dreams. Because again, they're, they're the natural state. They're the natural state. So a uh, wonderful question uh, leading to you know, a segue that could in- invite an opportunity to work with these nocturnal meditations, as I call them, of which you know, there are five, just to throw it out there, liminal dreaming, lucid dreaming, dream yoga, sleep yoga, bardo yoga. There are actually five nocturnal meditations. And so if you understand what they're about, you understand their astounding mind-bending benefits, like how much you can glean in the, the arena of the refined dreaming mind. That's the other place to go is to support your understanding of why should I bother my life is so busy I'm so full I don't have time for this stuff well. You may want to be bothered when you realize um, that this you know quite literally can be leading the evolutionary edge I, I say this quote a lot Matthew Walker a neuroscientist out of UC Berkeley wrote quite a fine book uh, called Why We Sleep, and he only devotes three pages to lucid dreaming. The fact he devotes anything's amazing. And at the end of it, he said something so amazing, I memorized it very easily, he said, it is entirely possible that lucid dreamers represent the next iteration in Homo sapiens evolution. And there's some neuroscience to back this. This is a, you know, probably for next event, I'll chat with you. There's some very interesting neuroscience and even neural anatomy about how the parts of your brain that actually come back online in the lucid dreaming state are actually the parts of the brain that are the most recent additions in neuroanatomical evolution. Really interesting overlaps. So all, I say all that somewhat long-winded because it's a long-winded preparatory. It's a long-winded, you know, preliminary is more important. You do all this, then you go to the targets, then you go to the induction methods, then they're gonna really work. Mm.
0: Wonderful, Andrew, that's fabulous. Where can people find out more about you? You have, I know, many, of course, books, and so, uh, but also great online resources, the nightclub and so on. Whereabouts can people find out more about you and the offerings you've got?
1: Thanks for that opportunity. Yeah, so, um, yeah, I have two main websites. <clears throat> My main one, um, actually, in terms of what we've been talking about to here, um, that would be the one you just alluded to. It's called nightclub. Playfully labeled, we, we started it several years ago when a group of people said, Oh, this is a really interesting program. Now what? And you know, people have been asking me that for ten years. I go, I don't know. I don't, Where can you go? I don't know. And finally, I said, geez, you know, maybe we can support them. Maybe we can do something. So, in fact, interesting, auspicious timing because literally, literally, just today, we're launching MyClub 3.0, which is a massively updated version of the site where we we do like what we're doing here. We we interview world's um, experts. We we have webinars. We have weekly guided meditation sessions book group sessions i mean every literally every day of the week there's an offering for people who are interested not only in the the so-called nocturnal meditations but also now in daily um, practice i also my main site articulates the programs i'm doing um, some of the books i'm working on that sort of thing so yeah andrewholacek.com and then the nightclub site um, will pretty much give you everything that uh I've got to offer these days. So thanks for that opportunity.
0: Yeah, wonderful. And all of that will be linked, of course, in the show notes below.
1: Andrew Holacek, thank you very much. Total delight, my friend, Stephen. Thank you for your very thoughtful, sensitive questions.
0: Thank you for listening to another Guru Viking podcast. For more interviews like these, as well as articles, videos, and guided meditations, visit www.guruviking.com.